Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have Miss Pamela Medzima on with us this morning. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning, Vernon. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Fine, thank you. Where are you at this morning? Where are you located? I'm joining the meeting today from our office in Epps, Alabama, at the Federation's Rural Training and Research Center. Epps, Alabama, and the training center in Epps. Okay, so where are you originally from? I'm originally from Zimbabwe, Southern Africa. I came to the U.S. about uh, 26 years ago to go to college, and at, at the time I thought I was going to go back home, but I've been here 26 years later and living in the Alabama Black Belt for um, 18 years now. Okay. So that's very rural. I've been to Epps a couple of times, maybe four times, and... Very much in the in the woods and the sticks, if you will. Was that the way you grew up? Did you grow up in a rural environment in Zimbabwe? No, actually, um, in Zimbabwe, I grew up in the capital city Harare, and um, I find it very funny that I found myself living and working in in a, in a rural community in Alabama. I remember when I came to the U.S. I came to the U.S. on a tennis scholarship. Tennis. Uh, where, yes, and I played tennis at Fort Valley State University. Uh, a small college in, in Georgia, and one of the things that my coach told me when I first joined the team and uh-huh. came told me that, you know, most rural communities are small and very rural, and I was surprised to learn that because growing up back home, we used to watch Beverly Hills 90210 and those type of things, and I never imagined that there would be a, a community like Epps, Alabama, or the Black Belt growing up, so... It was a very interesting um, learning experience. Well, it's interesting that you had a tennis scholarship. You could give me some lessons, um, but I haven't been on the court in a while. I didn't pick up a tennis rack until I was maybe 25, and I enjoyed it while I played tennis. But to think about going somewhere on a tennis scholarship, that's like, uh, wow. Okay. So you came here probably 17, 18, 19 years old from Zimbabwe from Herrera, which is uh, your capital city. So you're urban girl, and you came to, where's Fort Valley? Where is that located? Fort Valley is in middle Georgia. Um, it's about, let me see, about an hour and a half from um, the Atlanta, Georgia area. So it's close to Macon, Georgia, but in the middle Georgia area. So what did your parents think about you coming to the U.S.? Such, um, such a young person. Right. So when I came to the U.S., I was 16. In Zimbabwe, we go to school year-round, so uh, we don't have long summers like you guys have in the U.S., so we're able to kind of, you know, get our lessons in. And so when I came at 16, my parents were a little worried. 
But uh, prior to me coming, actually, my mother had attended college in Ohio in the 70s, and my grandfather actually had a, um, a scholarship in the 60s to come to study, I think it was education. So we've had a few family members coming from Zimbabwe to, to the United States, and so it was just one of those things that, you know, we all kind of look forward to. So your grandfather, okay. I went to school in the 60s. I went to college and started in 65. So okay. Well, he had a family then. He was much older, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so you're here. Your parents are a little worried because they have some experience coming here and getting an education. They probably wasn't as worried if you were the first child coming to, to the U.S. and the family to do scholarship. So you went to undergrad, and then you went to grad school. So what did you major in undergrad? At undergrad, I majored in general business, and I took a lot of economic courses. I really enjoyed economics, and so when I completed my undergrad at Fort Valley State University, a few of my professors helped me to get into Tuskegee University, where I majored in agricultural resource economics. Agricultural resource economics. So you're one of those tennis players, I would imagine, at least when I taught at Howard, the tennis players were the ones with the B plus A averages. They were academics and athletic. Were you one of those type people? Yes. So being from Zimbabwe, you know, grades are the more important aspect of going to school. And our parents back home pay for our tuition or uh, school fees, we call it, all the way through high school. So whether you're an athlete or not, you know, one of the things that you have to make sure you do is to make sure that you keep up your grades. So, again, to be able to maintain a scholarship and those type of things, um, I had to make sure that I did what I needed to do to get through my classes. Yeah, I cannot imagine going to a different country at 16 years old. I, uh, yeah, I was not that mature. I um, went to Kentucky State, which was not it was a train ride away from West Virginia. Then I came back to Bluefield State where I had grown up. So I was fairly well protected. Then a couple of master's degrees. Now, you're at Tuskegee. Did you get much into African-American history or African history at Tuskegee? Um, no, actually. So when I was at Tuskegee, most of the work that we were focusing on was really on, you know, getting your classes in the ag economics um, Part of it, I will say that when I was an undergrad at Fort Valley State University, I did take um, one history class that was taught by, I can't remember the coach's name, he was a football coach, and I don't think he did a really good job of really grounding us, and so we just, I barely, I think that was one of my worst grades. I didn't understand history, and I think I heard you talk about it before, about, you know, you know, having good history teachers and making sure that they're able to really teach history. So my initial sort of introduction to history, African-American history, and those type of things wasn't very strong in college. But when I joined the Federation, that's when I really began to, you know, understand all the dynamics of um, this country and, you know, African-American history. So when you joined the Federation, so how did you join the Federation? You're at Tuskegee, maybe, and did you learn about the Federation there? Yes, so um, I think about maybe six months upon trying to graduate with my master's, the goal for me had been to just continue to go to, to get my terminal degree. And I was trying to get into Auburn University at the time, but 
my major professor, Dr. Elena Kaberi, was, you know, just watching the way I was acting and could see that I was a little bit burnt out. So she suggested, you know, instead of, you know, trying to pursue a doctoral degree, I should just try to find a job. So it just so happened that the Federation of Southern Cooperatives had a job opening position for a forestry program assistant. And so after having an interview at Tuskegee by John Zippet, I got hired on to work at the Federation, and that was in 2004. So Ralph Page was in charge of the Federation at that time, and John Zippert was in charge of the Epps, Alabama, the training center and all of that. So that yes, exactly. So when I came to the Federation, I got to meet um, Ralph, who was the executive director at the time. Yep. So both of them have been on the show before, and John Zippert uh, and his wife, Carol, got the Hall of Fame a couple years ago, the Cooperative Hall of Fame, with all of the work they've done. Right. And I was totally shocked to find out that John was from New York because uh, he seems more country than I ever was. <laughs> no, that's true. Ever. I can never pick up that New York accent when I talk to him. I always wonder, like, really? <laughs> no. There is no New York accent there. It's all Southern accent. Uh, and he is a great guy. So he interviewed you at Tuskegee, and then you came over. You said it was a forestry job. So is it land assistance part of the of the Federation? Yes, exactly. So in 2004, um, the Federation had a grant through the Ford Foundation to establish um, what were called community-based forestry demonstration projects. And so we had a demonstration site here at the Federation's training center on agroforestry, and then we were establishing demonstration sites on different um, farms as a show-and-tell example of farmers learning from each other about agroforestry. And so the position was to be able to recruit farmers, do outreach, and work with um, university partners and, of course, the Ford Foundation to teach uh, forest landowners that were members of the Federation about agroforestry, uh, which would provide, you know, the livestock production of agroforestry as a source of short-term income for farmers to be able to pay their annual taxes and those type of things while they were waiting for their uh, timber to mature and to harvest and those type of things. So that's where I started at the Federation. So speaking of accent, I don't hear any accent from you. You you speak perfect English, if you will. So how did you get that? I mean, did you learn English in Zimbabwe? Yes. So uh, Zimbabwe was colonized by the British. And in order for us to uh, get into First grade, uh, we had to speak English. I think in, what do you call it, like uh, pre-first grade, you know, your parents at home are teaching you how to speak your local language, which is Shana for me, and English at the same time, so that by the time you get into grade one, you're able to speak English. So it was a requirement for school and to graduate high school. So how do you say good morning in Shana? Mangwanani. Mangwanani. Yes. Mangwanani? Yep. Okay. You got it. Mangwanani. And how do you say thank you? Majita. That's Majita. Thank you. Majita. Okay. Thank you. Majita. Okay. So you started in the first grade learning English. I know you had to know how to pronounce and maybe read or write or do something in English in order to get to the first grade. Okay. So that's why I hear no 
no accent from you? I think I still have an accent. I would just say, um, you know, there are not that many Zimbabweans in Epps, Alabama, Livingston, Alabama. So I spent a lot of my time uh, speaking my new southern rural Alabama accent that's similar to John's, right? So okay. No. I still feel I have my Zimbabwean accent. It'll probably pop up from here or there, but yes. So you um, went to school, got your master's, and now you're at the Federation. So that's your first job. What's your next job at the Federation? Right. So as we were, um, you know, working with forest landowners and uh, farmers to establish these uh, agroforestry demonstration sites, uh, part of what we were doing was, again, introducing livestock production to forestry management. And as the number of farmers that we were working with started growing, the number of goats that they were raising in their forested areas started to expand. And so the next step of our work was to assist the farmers in marketing this product that we had introduced to them. Okay. And so we that's, began to... That's a good place to stop because we've got to take our, our first break. We'll be okay. back right to, back talking to Pamela Manzima about her career at the Federation of Southern Co-ops. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and Ms. Pamela Medzima is our guest today. She is in Epps, Alabama. She's working for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. She came to U.S. when she was 16 years old, 28 years ago, as a student, got her master's degree at Tuskegee, and then started working with the Federation 18 years ago. And she just told us about her first two jobs at the Federation. And what just what what kind of work are you doing now? What's your job and what work are you doing at the Federation now? Yes, yeah, so right now, um, as I was saying earlier on, I transitioned into co-op development work from my uh, work as um, a forestry program assistant as we were working to organize farmers into marketing cooperatives. And so after working as the director of the Rural Cooperative Development Program for the Federation for about 10 years, two years ago, um, after doing an interview with Cornelius Blanding, our executive director, I got promoted to uh, being the Alabama State Coordinator. So I've been in the position of Alabama State Coordinator for uh, two and a half years now. So what do you do in that job? It's a very exciting job. I get to do three main things. One, um, I work and lead a team of outreach and cooperative development specialists that work directly with our uh, farmers, producer members, co-ops. And so the outreach specialists primarily, primarily um, you know, help farmers one-on-one -on -one with accessing programs of USDA, um, do one-on-one -on -one site visits, and will even go with a farmer to a USDA office if the farmer feels intimidated and so forth. So I work with outreach specialists to do that. And then our cooperative development specialists uh, basically uh, work with our co-ops to help with developing bylaws and uh, helping to establish their articles of incorporation. We do board training with our members and so forth. So that's one aspect of my work. And then the other part of my work is uh, focused on 
working very closely with, of course, uh, Cornelius Blanding in the East Point office and with the executive board of the Alabama State Association Cooperative. So I meet with the executive board once a month to talk to them about the status of the Alabama State Association, to talk about what co-ops and credit union members of the state association are, are trying to achieve their goals and then to work towards you know, achieving those goals with the staff that I work with. Okay, and the third thing? I would say um, the final thing, I, um, my approach to my position is making sure that I stay grounded in the work that I do. So I would say at least twice a week, I, I make sure I visit a farmer, whether I you know, either go out to lunch with a farmer or go to a farm and just visit them so that I can continue to you know, understand the issues and challenges that farmers may be facing on the ground as I work to develop the fundraising part of this work, which is the proposal writing and the report writing and those type of things. So if you were to ask me what I do on a weekly basis, uh, those are the, or monthly basis, those are the three things that I work on. Okay, so I bought an RV so I can go visit co-ops, and I, I see myself, I have the equipment that we're on right now that I could do the show at a farm or at a credit union, or COVID has stopped a lot of that, but I would love to go visit some farms with you and do the show on a Thursday morning with that farmer, you and I. That's exciting to me. You say keep grounded. I want to I get grounded in the co-op world and look at the people that are doing it and what kinds of issues and concerns do they have, particularly since the USDA throughout our history in the U.S., as you know as well as anybody, has not been friendly to black farmers. As a matter of fact, they discriminated against black farmers, and that's why I could see some of those farmers being intimidated by going either through not having the education or maybe even confronting discrimination today. Do you still confront discrimination today? Yes. I mean, um, I would say, you know, when we hear from our farmers, they sometimes feel that, um, you know, when they talk to a person at, at USDA, maybe they don't, they, they haven't gotten the right type of um, reception that they feel that they should have gotten. But it's, it, it's not in every county. So there are some counties where the staff in, in the USDA offices are, are really you know, going out of their way to accommodate, you know, the, the clients that are coming to their office, but there are one or two counties where we continue to hear feedback about the dismissal type of attitude that a farmer feels when they go into the office. Um, and one of the things that I've observed is that, you know, farmers end up needing our help in understanding the language of the programs. So if you go to an office where you know, a USDA person is not welcoming, you may be asking for uh, assistance with a particular service or program, but if you don't use the, the language in their book to describe it, they may not really volunteer that information. So part of our outreach work is to be able to help farmers to, you know, understand what the programs are, what the programs mean, so that when you do go into those offices, you can speak directly to those. But like I also said, we have other uh, offices where we are very friendly with the staff and uh, we you know, call each other on our cell phones and those type of things. So we've been able to have a good working relationship. And so some of it 
resistance you get from those offices could be racism, but it could just be you got a lazy person in there and they're not going to do anything for anybody. But right. okay, could be either of those. But you've got some offices that work really well with you, and then some that don't. You say a couple counties. Uh, just to, let's go switch a little bit to talk about when did the Federation of Southern Co-op start? Right. So the Federation of Southern Cooperatives started in 1967 during the Civil Rights Movement. And this year actually uh, marks 55 years of the Federation being in existence. So we're celebrating um, a little over uh, half a century of working in some of the poorest communities in, in, in rural areas from the Carolinas all the way to Texas is where uh, most of our membership are located. And so when the Federation started, uh, they were started by 22 cooperatives that came together in August of 1967 to incorporate um, what we now know as the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. And it started with 22. About how many are there now? So um, right now we currently count about 75 co-ops. Um, and we get this number because in each state, uh, we have between five to to ten cooperatives um, in the states that we work in um, from, again, like I said, the Carolinas to um, Texas. And so from time to time, some of our co-ops may go into dormancy or become inactive. And uh, once in a while, those inactive co-ops will come back to life, such as the Freedom Foods and Bee. Five years ago, it went into dormancy, but some community members came together to revive the Freedom Quilting Bee, and so it's now the Freedom Quilting Bee legacy. So, again, when we count our co-ops on our membership, uh, we generally have around 70 to 75 co-op members. Great. What's the mission of the co-op, of the Federation? So the Federation's work uh, is focused on three main things. One is um, around cooperative economic development, as the self-help economic development tool that the Federation used to, to, to organize themselves. And uh, the other two parts of our mission have to do with um, land retention. So the Federation works uh, diligently to be able to preserve and protect um, land that is owned by uh, its members and other uh, black family farmers in the South. And then the final aspect of our mission is around advocacy. So. Uh, we advocate on behalf of the family farmer, uh, black family farmers across the South. Okay. It's interesting that you use co-ops for this self-help economics. Why? Why do you, why do you use co-ops? Yeah, that's a, a really um, good question. And, you know, in our last discussion, I think with the last panel we did, we talked about how cooperatives are uh, – business model that are not taught in schools. And so, you know, when I went through college, I did not hear anything about a cooperative business model until I came to the Federation. But uh, the Federation used the cooperative business model to collectively assist farmers who were trying to market their products individually and were facing discrimination by acting alone. And so they researched models that could help these uh, farmers in the 60s to be able to get fair market prices and access to to better markets. And so the cooperative business model is what they found as a way of self-help economic development. So it's interesting that you got an undergrad degree in business. And I thought you would have heard about co-ops at Tuskegee because of their ag business in this 
uh, co-ops are used so much in agriculture, but you didn't hear about it in either of those schools. That's interesting. I didn't get it at Bluefield State, but mine was in math and chemistry. I didn't touch a business school. And then master's in math, no, I didn't. But I got an MBA in business, and there was no conversation about a co-op. So I started learning about them when I was managing housing co-ops in the district here. So self-help, the self-help part is we do it as a group. Individuals get help, but with working within a group, pooling monies, pooling resources. And you say you're in the, you develop co-ops as a means for people to enhance the quality of their lives and improve their communities. And I think that's the main reason that co-ops have been used throughout throughout time but we're going to take our second break uh we'll come back and i want to talk more about the alabama co-ops what what co-ops do you have in alabama we'll be right back please don't touch that dial your news talk station welcome back everybody the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have been supported both financially and giving us leadership by the National Cooperative Bank. They have been fantastic partner. They've been our main cheerleader for almost nine years, Pamela. We've been on the air. This October, Co-op Month, we would be nine years on the air. In June of nine years ago, we started talking about this uh, because I was on my cousin's show. Pat Thornton has a show uh, the Thornton Business Hour, and I was on her show on this same radio station, and the lady came out and said, Vernon, you should have your own show, and that was the idea. That was nine years ago, June. So this has been fantastic. We were only going to do it for one month, the month of co-op month in October, but I liked it. People liked it. Chuck Snyder, the president of the bank at that time, liked it, so we've been doing it for nine years. And I could see there's enough information about co-ops, and everybody didn't know that, in particular the, the black history. We talked about history. I didn't like history because blacks weren't in it, but that's a whole other story. The history of co-ops in the black community is, is wide, that we could have a, a show every day. We really could have a show every day of the week, at least an hour, if not two or three-hour show, to talk about everything that happens in the co-op world. So in the Federation, what we were talking about, you have 75 or so co-ops today. You started with 22 in 1967 at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. So what kinds of co-ops do you have in the Federation? Yeah, so when we look at the co-op membership composition, um, most of our cooperatives are ag uh, marketing slash purchasing cooperatives. So they make up about um, 54% of our membership, and then about 33% of our membership are the Rural Community Development Credit Unions, um, and that number has probably gone down slightly. And then the, the last um, 10 or so percent are our housing consumer fishing co-ops. Okay. So you got the range of co-ops. There's four sectors of co-ops, everybody. There are uh, worker co-ops, and a co-op is defined in a sector based on who owns and controls the business. So if the employees own and control the business, it's called a worker cooperative. And I don't see them on your chart. Do you have any worker co-ops in the Federation? Yes, so the worker co-op development work has 
is the work that we've been doing in the past, I would say, maybe five to ten years of really um, helping to establish worker-owned cooperatives. And so um, at the Federation, we are doing a type of incubator worker co-op development approach. So when establishing worker-owned cooperatives, I think there are about three or four ways that you can do it. One, uh, through conversions, where a business that's not a cooperative uh, may convert into a co-op and the owner may sell the, the business to the workers. Another way is, you know, the incubator uh, way of, you know, introducing the cooperative business model to community members and sort of walking them through that process and helping them to understand what a co-op um, is. And so that's the approach that we are attempting to use um, here in, in, the, in Alabama. Okay. So the second type is consumer co-ops, and that's when the people that buys the services or products or uses the services, like uh, credit unions or consumer co-op, the people that uh, deposit money in their owns the business, they, they elect the board of directors. Housing co-ops are the people that, that live in that housing cooperative. You have rural electrics, in particular in Alabama, you have rural electric co-ops that have been, been there since the 30s. Um, they developed through FDR's uh, administration. Uh, so those are consumer co-ops. Um, do you have any other consumer co-ops in the Federation? Um, no. So, yeah, so right now the two type of co-ops that we have are primarily, um, you know, the sort of the housing associations, and we are working in the Birmingham, Bessemer area to help start a community-owned grocery store. And so uh, that will be, if it's successful, hopefully by sometime next year, they'll be able to open their doors then. That would be uh, a new consumer-owned uh, grocery cooperative-type model that will be joining the Alabama State Association. So food co-ops could be consumer-owned, like you're saying, or it could be employee-owned. Um, and you also have some hybrids that's owned both by the consumers and the employees. But most food co-ops or grocery co-ops are consumer-owned. Uh, by the way, are you going to or anybody from Birmingham going to the up-and-coming conference? Of, I think it's May the 19th, somewhere in May, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin this year. Um, you know what? I need to put that on my agenda, so I'll add that. <laughs> okay. Deb Trocher out of Indiana uh, has started that and have been running that. Uh, and so I've been to their once. I've been to their conference. It's a wonderful conference to train people on how to start a food co-op, start and get it to grow and sustain itself in the community. Um, great information. So those are the consumer co-ops, and the other two are marketing co-ops or purchasing co-ops, and farmers use both of those, and that's why Department of Agriculture has been involved in co-ops. And the and Department of Agriculture, as I understand it, have more knowledge about co-ops than any other department in the U.S. government. HUD would have been second, but they haven't been doing co-ops for a while. So you get marketing co-ops where the farmers come together and they market their products. They create a company that markets their co-ops and so they can get their products to markets that they as an individual farmer could not get their milk to or their meat to or their vegetables and fruits to 
and these marketing co-ops would add value. And when they add the value, this often called producer co-op. So marketing slash producer co-op, and you have both of those uh, in your co-op. And Lando Lakes, Cabot Creamery, Ocean Spray are some big-name consumer costs, but most people don't know their co-ops when they go in and buy that, those foods. And on the purchasing co-op side is when farmers or artists uh, get together or individuals and they, they, buy, they come together to buy what they need to do their, their business, to create whatever they're creating. They are called purchasing co-ops. So farmers have used that for quite some time. And they normally get uh, products that they need of better quality because that company gets to study them and get better contracts. So they more often get a better quality and a better price by buying in volume and buying together. So the benefits of this self-help by working together is what it's all about, self-help by working together. So 54% of the Federation's members are agricultural marketing and purchasing co-ops. Also, Pamela, in uh, D.C., we have a, a company called CPA, Consumer Purchasing Alliance, and they were developed for churches and uh, schools, private schools, if you will, to help them buy in any nonprofits. And they're expanding out from D.C. They're going to other uh, cities now because in some cases, like trash pickup, they were okay. able to save churches. I know, they get it for one-third of the price they were paying. Uh, and I had it to trash companies were gouging churches and lay people that were managing churches, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, but this is the benefits of cooperation, and that's why the Federation was started in the 60s, because black folks could pool their resources and get more money working together, better products, better profits, better products, more markets, and all of the above. So... Those are the same types of co-ops you have in Alabama, those four types of co-ops. But what is uh, so, so, so marketing? SoCo? SoCo marketing, yeah. Okay, yeah, so, and I was going to add to what you were saying earlier that um, a lot of our co-ops are, the, the newest startup cooperatives are the hybrid type of co-op. So some of the younger beginning farmers are either starting uh, hybrids of producer-owned co-ops and worker-owned co-ops. And we also have a new cooperative in Salma, Alabama, the local cooperative that has three classes of worker-owners, producer-owners, and the consumer-owner restaurant. So wow. um, people are becoming very creative in wow. the way they're organizing co-ops based on you know the skill sets of maybe the people that are coming around to do it or the needs in those communities. So we have hybrids, and I also failed to mention um, our Gainesville Health and Wellness Center, which is one of our newer uh, members, which is a consumer-owned slash worker-owned health and wellness center, which is in Gainesville. And so right now the way it's being structured is it'll be owned by the people that exercise and work out in, in the wellness center, but also by some of the workers that have worked there. So we are, you know, trying to help establish these hybrids based on what people are asking us to help them with. Um, sometimes we start off with one class, you know, maybe the producer side get that sort of, you know, solidified, and then we can either add those other classes. Well, so, I, I got to tell you, let me stop because I'm excited because I would love to go to that restaurant 
Because if you have producers, those that are farmers that produce the food, and then you have the restaurant owners, and what's the third group? The consumers. So yes, I could join it as a consumer, and I'm going to get fresh foods, fresh nutritional foods. Wow. Okay. I want to play when that far on that restaurant. <laughs> and then you have the Health and Wellness Center in Gainesville. And I, I really want to get to know them because I'd love to have them, either either of these on the show, because I've had them. They're the clinic, a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin. I've had them on this show to talk about the benefits of, of, of having a co-op as a health clinic, but a wellness center where the, the members get a chance to say how what operates, what equipment is there, how open, how long it's open, blah, blah. They get a whole say in how this business works. That's fascinating. I want to play there, too. Okay. Coming to Alabama. Okay, now tell me about some other different types of co-ops uh, that are in Alabama. Right. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in preparing to talk to you today was to really get that, you know, cooperative landscape. And after uh, making calls and doing some research, I found that, you know, cooperatives in Alabama primarily those that are members of the Federation when it comes to the producer co-ops and other types of co-ops. But uh, we also have our rural electric co-ops. There are about 23 rural electric cooperatives in the state of Alabama. And then, of course, the two credit union members of the Federation of the Community Development Credit Unions, but also a number of larger uh, credit unions that are across the state. Some patronage um, at the end of the, the year, but we don't really necessarily always see their democratic member control aspect of um, organizing co-ops. But in, in general, that's the general makeup of our cooperative um, ecosystem in the state. So uh, we're going to go to our next break, but right now you've mentioned the word patronage. So when we come back, I want you to tell us what patronage is. Well, the, um, the principle of economics, the you put some money in if you join a co-op and you can get some money out. So tell us about that uh, when we come back. We're going to take our, our third break now. But as you can see, there's, this is called a cooperative ecosystem, the cooperative ecosystem in Alabama. Uh, from the information that Pamela has given us, is live and well. So we'll come back and talk about the money aspect of it. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, to Everything Cooperative. Today we are talking to Ms. Pamela Mizima, who is with the Federation of Southern Co-ops, and she's in charge of her Alabama Credit Union Association. And uh, before we took break, I was asking you if you come back and tell us about the other different co-ops in Alabama. You talked to us about the restaurant that's multi-ownerships and the, and the wellness center in Gainesville. So what are some other co-ops that you have in Alabama? Yes, so uh, as I mentioned earlier on, we have our, well, the rural electric co-ops and um, a lot of our members um, are members of the Black Warrior uh, Rural Electric Cooperative that covers a lot of the western 
um, Alabama Black Belt counties. And so if you live in, in certain districts of uh, Western Alabama, if your power is not supplied by Alabama Power, then it's the Rural Electric Cooperative that is uh, supplying that. And so uh, some of our work around uh, our rural electric co-op work has been to try to democratize our rural electric co-ops, especially Black Warrior. So for the past, I would say, six years, uh, we've focused a lot of our efforts on educating community residents about um, the fact that they're member owners of this rural electric co-op because of where their homes are located. And so we've done a lot of work in just going door to door, letting them understand what cooperative principles are and, you know, helping them to, to know that as a member owner, it's your role and responsibility to participate in meetings, to vote on things that um, you would like to see changed. And one of the things that uh, really brought us into this type of work were the very high utility bills that some of the uh, members that we work with were um, complaining about some of the utility bills were as high as $400 in, you know, an Alabama black belt community where the uh, household income for a family of four is $24,000. So you can imagine, you know, things like that were keeping people really poor. And so well, well, started, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but you just said the average income is 24000 The... Um, Sorry, the 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 average household income uh, for a family four that is considered at the poverty level is about twenty four thousand dollars okay. a year. And and what's the average income in the counties that you're talking about? Do you know that? So normally uh, we look at uh, median income. So hmm. uh, when you compare the median income of uh, most households in the Black Belt and I would say the 13 or 14 counties in the Alabama Black Belt, the median income is usually around uh, $33,000 compared to uh, the uh, median income for the state, which is, I think, right now at around 54000 Okay, so if you median income in those 13 counties is 33000 the median income for... U.S. called poverty is 24, but I've also heard 27, uh, but 24 to 27,000 is what the U.S. calls somebody in poverty. That would say that most of the people in that in those 13 counties are considered by the U.S. as being in poverty. Oh, absolutely, yes. And when you look at, um, you know, things like child poverty rates, about 40% of children living in black belt communities are considered living before, below the poverty line. So um, our communities are considered persistently poor, uh, mainly based on those uh, socioeconomic statistical demographics. So if the average income is 33000 and the U.S. government says that you should have no more than 33% of your income for housing, that's one-third, so that's 11000 a year for housing costs, and that includes that 11000 a year is like $950 a month. So if you have a $400 a month utility bill, that doesn't leave you much left over for the rest of your housing costs, the cost of the house, the other utilities, um, maintenance, upkeep of your home. No, that, so yeah, $400 is huge. 
and that's if you're at 33,000. Most of the people in that community is probably less than 27,000 or 24,000, which is in poverty. So, yes, I get it. That's $400 utility bill, electric, electricity bill, which is just astronomical. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, again, part of our work has been to, you know, really help you know, community residents to be able to, you know, access other ways of um, reducing those uh, utilities. And uh, since we've done work um, in, in this area, um, surprisingly, the utility bills have, have gone down. So I think some of the success stories that have come out of this have been, you know, more affordable uh, utility bills and more uh, residents are a little bit more informed about, you know, what uh, Black Warrior and Road Electric Co-ops are supposed to be and what they can do to enhance their communities. So I have it, Pamela, that a co-op is successful if it has engaged members first. And while you're going around, you're doing advocacy work for the members. <laughs> members, this is what you've got to do. You've got to get engaged. You've got to understand. You've got to vote. You've got to know the issues. And then they elect governance. And if you have good governance, and then governance will hire management. And so you need engaged members, good governance second, and good management third in order to have a successful co-op. And what I, when consumer co-ops, most of the members don't even know they're a co-op and don't know they have a say, and so they don't exercise it. And you're going and teaching people, training people on what their responsibilities and opportunities are to be in a consumer co-op. Did I get that right? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I, I really want to focus my work on now, you know, when you're looking at the principles of cooperative, um, is principle five constant education, both internally, meaning board development, member development, and those type of things, but externally. And that's one of the things that, you know, we're really realizing is going to be very important to be able to strengthen the cooperative ecosystem in, in Alabama. When I reached out to some of our members in, in Birmingham and had a conversation with them about, you know, uh, is there any support system in helping to develop co-ops in, in Birmingham, especially around this grocery co-op initiative? You know, the, the members there said, well, no, the, the politicians may know about cooperatives, but this is not the economic development tool that they're used to uh, using. And so it's going to take a lot of effort and work on our part to be able to begin to really help communities understand, you know, the role that cooperatives play in really changing and shaping the way in which impoverished communities are. Yeah, and speaking of those principles, that's exactly it. And I added, so in, in this co-op ecosystem, it's the different types of co-ops, which we've already talked about, and how they can work together in the sixth principle of cooperation among co-ops to help strengthen themselves and strengthen and create new co-ops. And then you have the cooperative support system of training, which is the fifth principle you talked about, technical support, how to start one, how to keep one going, financing, how do you finance it. Uh, and this is where those 23 rural electric co-ops could help in financing new worker co-ops and other co-ops and the credit unions. And then you have the legal and political part of 
Alabama, I understand it. Uh, tell me if I'm right or not, Pamela. They don't have laws to have to create worker co-ops. Yes, exactly. So in Alabama right now, uh, the only type of cooperative that you can incorporate in the state are your agricultural marketing cooperatives. And so the example that I gave you in Salma, the local cooperative, they actually had to go, I think, to Minnesota. They worked with one of our uh, partners, lawyer partners there. To Dave Swanson. Dave Swanson. Yes, Dave Swanson. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Penelis Landry assisted in in helping them become incorporated. So they were incorporated in another state and are operating, you know, as a foreign entity, of course, um, in Alabama. And so the Federation with work with uh, Melville Smith and others are really working to be able to um, encourage more um, cooperative enabling laws in, in some of the states that we're located in. And so that's the advocacy part of it. And then I've added, it wasn't in the literature uh, that I've read, but, I've added the sixth uh, uh, cooperative uh, support, and that is promotions and public relations because of just what you're saying. We've got to train the public on the benefits of co-ops so they know if you're in a consumer co-op, what your rules are, what your obligations are, and your responsibilities, opportunities and responsibility, and the elected officials, or we need to elect officials that will put in the laws that will help benefit co-ops. So, Pamela, we only have a minute or so left, so tell us what you'd like to leave people with. What message would you like to leave people with? Yeah, so, again, thank you so much for, you know, having me on your show today. And, you know, it's always a privilege to be able to talk about the very important work that the Federation does, the work that the Federation has been doing for 55 years. I've, I find myself stuck in Alabama, something <laughs> um, that I can't. I haven't been able to leave and shake because, you know, the work that we do is so important. I remember when I first joined the Federation, I called a farmer, and uh, when I spoke to them, I think we had a good conversation, I felt, and the farmer asked me, um, so how long are you going to be here for? And so that question that someone asked me 18 years ago has stuck with me, because, you know, in our communities, in rural communities, we tend to see, you know, people come and go, um, skilled people coming and going, and so... You know, we got to go. I'm sorry. I, I, I know the people are leaving Thank the you. rural areas, but we've got to go. Thank you, everybody out there. Thank you, Pamela, for being on with us this morning. And we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. <laughs> <laughs>